My cat is puking. One second. <laughs> he's so appalled by the Giants' roster construction. I know. He's a, he's a big Dodgers fan. Yeah, that's, that must be it. There. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 13th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from Pennsylvania is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Oh, you know, <laughs> not bad. Tuesday in the middle of uh, the NBA Finals, the Tuesday of the All-Star Game. What a day. Big sports time, uh, unlike usual when this is sort of uh, an oasis of, of sports, where at least the days around the All-Star game. Yeah, are. the NBA uh, schedule has really messed up my entire understanding of the sports world, so so that's fun. Uh, and from California is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Hey, Sarah, how are you? Uh, I was just looking over the script. Uh, I don't see the British Open preview uh, do we forget we're a golf pod? We 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 did we did forget that we're a golf pod. You're uh oh yeah you were gonna you're gonna stay up all all night tomorrow night so that you can watch it Thursday morning right? I know I'm very disappointed we're not previewing it. I mean it's only <laughs> the last major. Well, it feels like all the players got COVID and aren't playing anyway. So what difference does it make? Also, there's still the Ryder Cup this year. So I feel like okay, the British Open is slightly there's less. There's some hope. There's some hope. Yeah. I was gonna yeah. say. I can get into the Ryder Cup. It's happening in September. Nothing else is happening then, so sure. No, <laughs> no, downtime. Yeah, you guys, so exciting last week, though this seems like uh, forever ago now, that Tampa Bay finally, finally won a title in something. Thank goodness for the lightning. Wasn't that, I mean, you got to feel for the the people of Tampa having to go five whole months between championships. I like how we're already getting in on this type of talk uh, with Tampa when they're maybe like in year two of Boston's like 20 year uh, span that led up to this when I assume they passed the torch to Tampa and now Tampa has the talisman, the magic talisman that allows one city to win every championship. I do want to just like the lightning win was interesting to me because the whole Stanley Cup playoff was so like wild and, and unpredictable. And then the final was just like, Yep, that happened. <laughs> I feel like that happens sometimes. Like uh, the the Cinderella teams, they seem like they can go to the final and then can't do anything once they get there. And maybe we'll play this audio back to haunt me next year. But it does also feel, given the track record of those like Cinderella teams, go to the final and then like lose to a clearly superior team that we don't really hear from those teams again mm. the next year or you know for a little while. Maybe Montreal will will buck that trend. Well, that that seems to be the way things go. That was true with the Predators. Remember when they went to the final and it was all exciting, and then they kind of fell apart. But the Knights have hung around after they their have, run, yeah. the- and they were a great Cinderella. You know, we kind of already knew that they were g- better than an expansion team should have been uh, pretty early on in that season. Uh, but yeah, they've kind of built off of that. So uh, maybe they uh, they're the exception that Montreal can kind of join to the general rule. Yeah. On today's show, we'll take a look at the seesaw that is the NBA Finals. Then we'll survey the baseball landscape now that MLB has reached its All Star break. And finally, we'll have a little rant about English soccer as a treat. 
Game four of the NBA Finals is tomorrow night, and it's been a great series so far, no matter what the Twitter trolls say. Milwaukee came roaring back on Sunday in a must-win game three, led by Giannis Antetokounmpo, who put up his second straight game with over 40 points. While the Suns and Bucks remain very closely matched, we have been treated to a wild seesaw of takes in the past week, going from the Suns having it in the bag after game two to now the Bucks having everything they need to win after game three. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith made the case for why media commentators have done a 180 on the finals. I would tell you that Milwaukee has the edge, assuming that they uh, play the way that they played last night. And what I mean by that is that when you had people like myself uh, feeling like they were clueless, or when you had Kendrick Perkins being far more incendiary with his language about the idiocy that he was witnessing in front of Milwaukee Bucks, what we were talking about was the fact that this is a team that's, biz- that's bigger and significantly more physical that was not using it to their advantage. That wasn't the case last night. So not the worst of Stephen A's takes this week. So so that's something. Love him throwing Kendrick, per- Kendrick Perkins under the bus in the middle of that one. Let's consult something with a slightly longer view of this series. Neil, where does our model stand after game three? Does it agree that the Bucks have a significant advantage now? Uh, no, it would say that the Suns are still the favorites going forward. Uh, they have a 74% chance, and I think that just stems from for one thing, being up two to one is a nice advantage to have. They they won both of their home games so far, and the Bucks uh, still have work to do in that department. And also, I think in in terms of just how the Suns have played, they have a higher rating than the Bucks do. Uh, and some of that is because of injuries with the Bucks, and you know the the Suns. I think also as we've talked about they still maybe don't get the credit for the type of season that they had. So I think all of those things come together. But it has been nice to see, you know, signs of life from the Bucks and signs that Giannis is just ready to dominate after that injury where we thought by all rights he should maybe uh, have, have not been playing. And not only has he been playing, but he's been playing fantastic. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Our model... At full strength, so if no one were injured, the Bucks have like a very slight edge in our rating. But you know, each team each team has lost a player, but the Bucks player that they lost was just much more important to them. And Dante DiVincenzo, you know, the Suns lost Dario Saric, which was you know a, a loss, and it affects their rotation, but not nearly as much as they lost like two points <laughs> in ELO rating, and the Bucks have lost you know thirty two. So it's it's a big difference in in those individual losses for each team, and that kind of exposes maybe some of the flaws in a model like the one that we have, in the sense that it is still sort of additive, where it just sort of assumes like okay. We reallocate the minutes to players that are healthy and then take a weighted average based on the ratings and all of this and that. Uh, But it doesn't really take into account the matchup and also just the needs that certain players are filling. So you could say Dario Saric, when the backup is Frank Kaminsky, is maybe more, you know, the the loss gets amplified a little bit more than maybe we're um, giving credit for in the system, especially when DeAndre Ayton gets in foul trouble early and all of a sudden they they have to kind of dig deep into their uh, their rotation of bigs and that can get exposed by uh, Giannis's kind of bull rushes to the basket uh, and, and all we've heard about uh, after game three was about how Giannis had more free throw attempts himself 
than the Suns as an entire team had. And I think that that's kind of indicative of the position that the Sarich injury has kind of put Phoenix in to a certain extent. So Jeff, do you, do you think the Bucks have figured out the Suns a little bit in game three? Or are there things that Phoenix can do to try to stifle Milwaukee again? I think that DeAndre Ayton foul trouble was something that was like a mid-series development. You know, I think that they kind of exposed the Suns without having Sarich, as Neil said, and having Kaminsky was like really grim situation. Like, basically, DeAndre can't get in foul trouble anymore. And I think, <laughs> you know, the Bucks, you know, were purposely targeting him. And I think part of that was smart because I think Giannis is at his best when he's like, right, you know, playing at the rim and going to the rim all the time, which is what he was doing. He was decisive. He was super aggressive, super physical. And they were certainly attacking Aiton once he had two fouls. And I think either Aiton needs to, you know, watch out for those early fouls or just learn that <laughs> it's going to be better to give Giannis like a free layup than to pick up a fourth or fifth foul if it means Frank Kaminsky's coming on, um, especially Von Sarch, because they, they clearly were exposed without um, him on the court. And But I mean, the other big thing is that Booker was bad. I mean, he, he had an off night, definitely by his normal standards and even by his playoff standards. I mean, if we I mean, I tend to forget that this is the this is his first playoff run, so I think it's kind of expected to have these off nights on the road in a finals game. But if he shoots that poorly and you have a situation with the bigs, then that is a problem. I mean, there's only Paul there's only so much Paul can do. But we've kind of seen this all playoffs is that you know, when Booker's off, Paul will pick him up um, and vice versa. So they can survive Booker not shooting, but if they have sort of both problems going on, that that can't happen again. Um, but, you know, look, we said at the beginning, they're evenly matched teams. And we were saying that when we weren't even sure on, you know, Giannis's health. And now he looks fine. So they're evenly matched teams. Now, not, no team has sort of lost serve yet at home. So to me, this is, you know, anyone's series. I'm not going to I'm not going to make a, a sharp mid-series <laughs> take. I've learned yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that's I think that's what's so funny. It's like so two games in Phoenix, you know. The Bucks have to win a game in Phoenix. They didn't have to win one of the first two as long as they win their home games. I was pretty, Neil can attest to this, I was very adamant that, um, that the Bucks were going to win game three because the, I didn't think the Suns could keep up the kind of the incredible hot shooting they had at home in a hostile environment. Like, I think you, you do, you're not going to shoot lights out on the road every road game. So the, after the first two games when, you know, everyone was saying... Suns and four. I just didn't, I did not think that was going to happen. The Bucks are, are good. The Bucks are a good team and the, and the Suns weren't going to shoot like that every game. They just, that's impossible. Yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. They were shooting 42% from three over those first two games and they shot only 29% in game three. And you really saw the Bucks defense sort of look more like the Bucks defense uh, in that game as well. And they were able to kind of turn that defense into offense also uh, in, in uh, a number of occasions. So it was really more just seeing the Bucks like people forgot over those first two games, like how they look when Giannis is playing really well. Which, like, you know, at the end of the Atlanta series, Giannis wasn't there. So we really yeah. haven't seen, you know, there there was a time in which we didn't see them clicking and the supporting cast also clicking. I think that was something that, um, like, Giannis had great games in the first two games, especially in game two, and yet they weren't able to win because the supporting cast really wasn't there the same way, but they showed up big in game three. And that's, I think, part of the chess match of this series. We've talked about 
how the it it really is about like the Bucks, the non Giannis Bucks being able to kind of perform uh, and what they're going to get out of Middleton and Holiday and you know so on and so forth. And Burke Lopez, you know, yeah, yeah, I do think that the defensive key there is was really important to the series too because you know in game one so the Bucks have tried a lot of different defensive schemes on the Suns pick and roll they've switched they've used drop they've now you know they have Drew Holiday fighting through screens and really sticking tight to Chris Paul which seems to be working a little bit better I mean the Suns have a really potent pick and roll offense and and it is hard to defend especially given the Bucks like typical tendencies in in guarding that so they've tried a lot of different things and do seem to find something at the moment that's worked but I have a sense that Monty Williams will figure out a a way to counter that too this is a great series of chess matches and I think that's been what I have enjoyed most seeing how they've reacted to the adjustments has been really interesting and and really cool you love to see that from teams from evenly matched teams where they're trying to find that one edge that will give them the game. So let's talk about Giannis specifically for a second here, too. I mean, those the performances he put up in, in games two and three would be wild anyway, but especially considering we thought he might be done, done for the season, done for the series, done for, like, into next year. I mean, like, done, done with that injury. So, Neil, how does this little run for him stack up in terms of great finals performances? Just by the numbers, he's on pace for one of the greatest finals performances ever. Now, of course, it's only three games in. Things can change uh, as as we've seen from, you know, other players have hot starts to the finals and then not be able to kind of finish them. But right now, if you look at game score, which is John Hollinger's sort of all-in-one single game metric, and you look at the average per game, he is currently averaging the highest game score per game of any player in NBA finals history, like in a single finals, beating out Shaquille O'Neal's 2000 uh, performance and Kevin Durant in 2017. It's pretty good company to be in anyway. Uh, And that's also true if you look at players by box plus minus. He's second to Michael Jordan in 1991 uh, in terms of, uh, you know, value on a per possession basis. So it's it's been a historic run for him. Again, there's a lot of basketball left to be played. So it's a little early to say that, you know, this could be the greatest of all time. But definitely he's been playing at the best level probably of his career in the exact right moment. And maybe that was a little lost when they lost those first two games and it was sort of overshadowed and uh, again that goes goes back to what we were saying earlier that like as great as Giannis has been and we've seen this from LeBron countless times like you can play great on this stage and have a historic uh, individual performance and still have it not be enough to win if your your teammates don't uh, produce as well and if you're playing against a really good deep team uh, and not that I'm comparing the Suns to the Dynasty Warriors or anything <laughs> like that but you know it, it is kind of comparable because we've seen many finals where LeBron put up a performance like this and lost uh, and I think that did kind of affect how we talked about him in those cases so Giannis has been playing great but I do think there is also like the component that he can't control which is you know do the players around him also step up and kind of keep playing as well as they did in game three uh so that they can actually win the series that's an interesting point do you think that if if the suns win this if the bucks don't come back Giannis has this great finals will we like does that diminish it 
some in 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 how we think about him, how we talk about him. Do you have to win the finals to be a superstar to be in that same conversation as LeBron? Yeah, but I think you do. But I, I don't think people were making that. First of all, I think we've always, a lot of people have been guilty of being too hard on LeBron in his finals performance. A couple times, you know, the, he was essentially doing it alone. I don't think that's the case with Giannis. I think we've seen that if he does have a down game, Middleton has been great at like stepping up sometimes and, and really taking over. We haven't seen one of those games yet, so that'll be interesting. But I, I think those reputations are built from like multiple finals appearances with the same result. So mm. I don't know. At this point, though, I feel like that people will potentially get after him if they don't win because it seems like Every take is possible at this point. <laughs> All takes are possible. All takes oh, are possible. No takes have been ruled out. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. We have the world of takes in front of us. He didn't do enough. He was playing like, uh, you know, Pete, Shaq, Durant, or MJ, and it wasn't enough. And he needs to get better. He needs to get better. <laughs> <laughs> all of, all of the takes the take. in one take, yeah. yeah. All right, well, we, I'm sure, will have more to say after games four and five, but we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and come back to talk about baseball. We have reached the 2021 MLB All-Star break, but even though this isn't actually the halfway point of the season, we thought now would be a good time to look back and assess the baseball we've seen, who has surprised us, and what we have to look forward to as we get closer to the playoffs. We aren't the only ones who are thinking about surprises either. On ESPN, Tim Kirkton talked about the team absolutely no one saw coming this year. Well, the Giants, I didn't even have the Giants as a playoff team entering the season. But right now, they have the best record in baseball. The only team that has a lower ERA than the Giants is the Dodgers. The Giants have more shutouts, 11, than any team in the major leagues. And they've hit more home runs than any team in the major leagues. And sorry, I didn't see any of this coming. But they are so good right now that I'm sure now they're going to make the playoffs. And they have a chance to win the division, which I don't think many people thought with the Dodgers and the Padres in the same division. I think we all agree with that take in that none of us saw the Giants coming. And in fact, none of us took San Francisco in our preseason World Series draft when we had every team available to us. We all ignored the Giants. Neil, can we quantify just how surprising the Giants have been and and what their chances are of winning the NL West? Well, yeah, I mean, they are the team that has added the most points of ELO rating, uh, which is our power rating here at 538, uh, since preseason. And it's not even close. They basically have double the uh, points added to their rating uh, since opening day of any other team. Number two is the White Sox. Uh, and then the Rays, the Red Sox are in the conversation. But yeah, the, the Giants just blow them completely out of the water. And it goes to what was being said in the take that... Nobody really thought, especially in that division, where it seemed very obvious that the top two teams were the Dodgers and uh, the Padres. We were all preoccupied with them. We did not think that uh, the Giants would kind of join that conversation. 
And now uh, another point is that their world's uh, their playoff odds have gone from nine percent to ninety one percent since opening day, and they uh, are still you know maybe a little bit lower than we would expect. So they and the Red Sox actually are tied at four percent to win the World Series right now, which is behind a few other teams like the Dodgers are at twenty eight percent, the Astros are at fifteen percent, the White Sox at, and Rays at nine percent, the Padres at seven percent, even the Brewers and Mets are ahead of uh, the Giants. So uh, there's a little bit of like maybe potential for regression to the mean. But again, it's the same algorithms that are saying that they're the ones that didn't see the Giants coming in the first place. So, you know, how much uh, credence should we should we put into them? But that's what's great about baseball is that you can have a team like this that comes out of nowhere. And it's not that weird. I think this one's pretty weird, though, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, the fact that they're Abnormally all 34 weird. years old. Yeah. I mean, we, how many times have we talked about uh, the decline of the 30 and older baseball player? And here we have Buster Posey, who didn't play for a year, Brandon Crawford, Brandon Belt. They're all thir- Evan Longoria. Evan Longoria. They're all 34 plus. And then you look at the pitching performances they're getting from some of these guys like, you know, Kevin Gossman and stuff. It, it's it's hard to make sense of. And you look at the run differential, it's not fluky. They're legit. And in that division, on top of it, with the Padres and the Dodgers and how formidable they are, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But I, I don't see it going away. I, I think it's just all the magic of Gabe Kaplan. <laughs> well, it does <laughs> and, kind of and call and into question the f- physique. <laughs> um, he really got run out of town in, in Philly. So I was going to uh, say, yeah, like, you know, jo- uh, people kind of lauded the the move to replace Gabe Kapler with Joe Girardi. And now we're maybe we need to reconsider that based on the two teams performances since then. Well, so 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 the Giants aren't the only big surprise this this year, and they're not the only team we got wrong, very wrong in our preseason draft. Let's let's look back for a second on those drafted teams just to revel in our wrongness because um, that's fun for everyone. Well, so Jeff, you took the Dodgers, the Mets, the White Sox, the Blue Jays, and the Phillies. Not that's not terrible. I did pretty well. You yeah, know, that's not let, terrible. Let's be honest here. Yeah, uh, no, let's. The, we got <laughs> playoff where teams it's here. Due. We got playoff teams here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Neil, you took the Padres, Twins, Braves, A's, and Nationals. How are you feeling about that? Padres, A's, and then, yeah, like three teams that are definitely (laughs) not going to make the playoffs. Yeah. And I picked the Yankees, Astros, Rays, Brewers, and Angels. Always with the Angels. I always believe that the Angels are going to make it happen. And I... Do well, not. if only that Otani guy would play great. Oh, wait, he is. <laughs> I know. I, I Like, this is not... I mean, I thought Otani would be good. If I had known going into the season that Otani would be starting the All-Star game as the pitcher and <laughs> the uh, <laughs> hitter, I would have thought the, that the Angels were, um, you know, in playoff contention. And yet, no. So, now that we're at the All-Star break, I want to give us the opportunity to redraft... So we can get rid of some of our terrible teams. Neil, you can jettison the twins. I know um, I know that will hurt to do. We can keep the teams we want. We can redraft up to three teams. So it's like draw poker. Yes, it's draw poker. <laughs> exactly. Deuce is wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Um, so our, our producer has used a random number generator to determine the order. 
which is Sarah, Neil, Jeff. I go first. That's the important part of all of this. Um, and I'm going to stay true to the segment and, and pick up the Giants. Why not? <laughs> We've talked about them so much. I believe in them. So I'm going to take are you the discarding. Gi- I'm going to discard um, the Angels. Sorry. Sorry, Shohei, I believe in you, but, um, you know, your team is bad. <laughs> okay, so I've, that's that's my pick. Neil, what are you going to do? All right, I am going to drop the twins. Sorry, yeah. Sarah. No, for sure. And, <laughs> like a hot potato. And, <laughs> right, like, uh, yeah, like a hot potato, and I'm going to pick up the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, that figure uh, you were, yeah. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Saw that one coming. <laughs> yep. Jeff, how about you? Well, you guys took the two good ones. Right. <laughs> that was the idea. That was I mean, indeed the idea. I, I don't know if I... I ugh, there's not even that many upgrades I can make here. All right, I guess I'll get rid of the Phillies. And I'm going to take... Uh, I guess I'll take the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, all right, fine. I think the Reds probably are in a little bit better position than the Phillies. But the Phillies are in second place, so... It's a tough one. It's a tough one. That's right. going to be my only move. I'm going to make that switch. Phillies for Reds. And okay. I'm done. I'm done. I don't need it. I'm taking, I'm staying with the Blue Jays. All right. All right. Sounds good. Um, I'm also going to stand pat. I think, I think even, even the Yankees are pretty oh. high up in our odds. So, um, okay. Neil, how, uh, are, what else are you going to do? You had the, the most weak links to uh, I replace. I had so many weak links. Um, okay, so having ditched the twins, mm-hmm. I am also... Oh, this is actually really tough uh, because I do have the Braves and the Nationals now, but the Phillies are available to me. And uh, I think I'm going to... I think with the Acuna injury, mm. I think I'm going to ditch the Braves and I'm going to pick up the Phillies off the waiver wire, wow. which may be completely against the spirit of this game because no, I, I went going I, I in. Applaud it. I applaud I think, it. No, I like it too. Yeah, I'm, I think that's it's interesting. You ditch. You didn't ditch the Nationals, though. I guess the Acuna, Acuna injury is huge. Right, exactly. I felt like, you know, the, the Braves have more room to kind of fall uh, without Acuna for the rest of the season, whereas the Nationals, I mean, Schwarber's out, and who knows if he can continue to hit like Babe Ruth reincarnated uh, if and when he comes back. But at the same time, I, I feel like there's too much talent. I just have been, I think I picked them in our World Series draft last year going into the 60-game season and was wildly disappointed by them i'm just like a Nationals stan i think i i am so intoxicated with the potential of that 2019 team that against all evidence to the contrary i refuse to accept that they're not actually that good <laughs> so i'm gonna keep doing that i guess but really yeah when, we've reached this point where i don't know who like even if i were thinking about dropping the nationals also i'm not sure who i would pick up right like, maybe the angels would right. be the, you know right. another vulture pick uh the cubs have played themselves completely out of uh contention it seems yeah the cardinals are horribly the disappointing what about the mariners uh, I don't really believe in the Mariners. Uh, Why not? I mean, feel Why free if you, you believe in the Mariners. <laughs> well, hey, what if I? What if we swung a deal where, like, I uh, I picked up the Mariners and then I traded them to you for the Blue Jays? Would you take that trade? They have a better record right now. I could have dropped the Blue Jays for the Mariners, and I didn't. <laughs> Why not? Though they have a better record. 
here's what I think we should do. The trade deadline is coming up at the end of the month. I think we should be able to reassess the our team teams trade at that point. <laughs> yes, and then trade if we want. I think that's what okay. we should do. I think that's fair. <laughs> the team that interests me a little bit was the Cubs, just because they did have a flash there where they looked awesome. And then they've, I guess the wheels have just fallen off in that yeah. division. I mean, what happened? The Brewers are now running away with it. You know it. <laughs> but for a while there, the Cubs looked like they were back. They're not back, though. I know, and now the Cubs, they might uh, sell off a number of good players down the stretch. That's how bad things have kind of gotten for them, uh, which would also make them not very appealing in this draft. I am tempted by the Marlins also because I feel like they are so much better than their record uh, would indicate. Uh, If you look at, like, you know, the Pythagorean uh, theorem and and things like that, even adding up war, they're 11th in total war among all teams in baseball right now, but they've underperformed their Pythagorean expectation by seven and a half games, which is just far more than any other team. Uh, yet at the same time, like in that division, I don't know. I'm, I'm just too obsessed with the NL East, I think, I th- in general yeah, I think also. I, I, I enjoy the idea that you would drop the Twins, who are 39 and 50, and pick up the Marlins, who are 39 <laughs> and 50. <laughs> it's all about those fundamentals, Sarah. Sure, sure. I mean... <laughs> I totally agree, and yet also it is about winning the game. I mean, um. the good thing, Neil, and the reason I'm sort of regretting now dropping the Phillies is that we know, <laughs> we know the Mets are complete frauds. Um, <laughs> what, I mean, you weren't convinced by that Pete Alonso home run derby performance? Oh, my goodness, that guy. He was dominating. First of all, you're not an all-star, okay? You have 17 home runs, which is way down the list. I wish there was a striking out with runners in scoring position derby because that would be more indicative of what he's done. The way baseball is going, by the way, they may as well add that. <laughs> trying Not to strike actually, out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know what was funny about Pete Alonso was like that he looked like a guy who won a million dollars and kind of needed a million dollars. Like. <laughs> It was a pay salary. raise his um, usual salary. That was the reaction. Uh, it was like winning Survivor for him. Uh, <laughs> so I, I did like seeing that. But I come on, these guys who aren't even on the All Star team playing—that's like ugh, I don't know. Don't I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm a Mets. That was great. That was great. He's I'm he's a Mets believer. Sure. I'm a Mets believer. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that everything has gone wrong. Yeah, think about the injuries. Think about Lindor underperforming in the first half, although I think he's been better than he's gotten credit for. And and yet they're still leading the division. I think this team has has big potential down the stretch. Yeah, wow. maybe. I mean, they, they need to get some pitchers back. They have the second fewest runs scored in the league behind the Pirates, which makes sense when you score two runs a game. Yeah. Uh, every game. Yeah. You never want to be next games. to the Pirates in any category. <laughs> so true. So true. All right. Well, let, let's let's talk for a second again about the Home Run Derby. Because um, so even I, as a notorious All-Star Break hater, really enjoyed the Home Run Derby last night. And not just the, the repeat performance for Pete uh. Alonso, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is hilarious. Uh, what did you What did you guys think about the rest of the Derby? It was really fun, right? I mean, like... I think it's always fun. I, I'm a fan of it. I, I actually had a weird reaction, as I've already voiced, in seeing uh, Matt do it. But, you know, because, like, I think we all remember that David Wright having that great home run Derby and then 
was that basically the beginning of the end for his career? Um, not like I think that's going to happen to Alonzo. If anything, maybe it'll help him. But yeah, he was swinging pretty free by the end of that. If he can get a swing <laughs> like that, well, or if if some uh, you know old pitching coach could yeah. uh, just lob some pitches right over the plate to him in games that count, that would also help a lot. I think. No, yeah, that <laughs> seems like a good a good idea. My favorite was where the pitch hit him. <laughs> that's great. one of the pitches that was very funny um I, the format of the home run derby i think could use a tweak Always. the like the head-to-head thing in that first round seems really silly i felt super bad for salvador perez who had this like great showing and then didn't move on it just it doesn't quite make sense to do that why not just take the top four of the first eight and move them on like i, I don't i don't really yeah. understand that and Otani also got just uh, the draw for him was brutal, like going against Soto, who I know is like maybe had a little bit of a down first half by his standards. And they were sort of basing the seating on that. But at the same time, like, do you really want to be facing Juan Soto in a um, home run competition? I don't No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> But I love the for you know the the format change at least uh, to get rid of you know they used to have outs uh, and you could sort of have like unlimited pitches thrown to you as long as you didn't swing and and not hit a home run which of course incentivized very boring like I'm taking every pitch unless it looks you know straight down the middle and like I can hammer it right that led to some like just awful home run derbies for a long time uh and the and the change i think it was in 2015 when they added this sort of short short bursts and you're trying to get as many in as possible in like a very short period of time but you get the bonuses if you hit the home runs of certain distances and and whatnot i think that that was a great change and i'm with you sarah on the idea of like the head-to-head is probably pretty unfair uh, depending on the draw that you get and and who you know happens to have a hot round against you but at the same time this is such an improvement on the previous iteration of the home run derby i feel like a lot of the best home run derbies of all time have come in the last like five years yeah i think i think i think that makes sense and i think that's true and i there's like the artificial setup of the hitters going against each other like bothered me until i was like wait what about this is like oh oh the purity of the home run derby like it's it's all silly and like who cares <laughs> yeah they always are tinkering with the rules yeah it's yeah. it's kind of they always tinkering with the dunk contest rules too it's it's kind of shocking they haven't figured out a format that just works so that everyone knows the format going in but whatever we've been doing this for a long time these gimmick competitions are not new right we should have them figured out and yet and yet we don't. Um, anyway, it was super entertaining. I, I think there's a case to be made for always having it at Coors Field. Yes. <laughs> More 600 foot home runs, please. I think that's what, that's what we truly need, right? <laughs> I missed the news on this. Why didn't Vlad Guerrero not participate? I don't like that. Come on, Vlad Dito. Get out there. This is like a LeBron not doing the dunk contest when he was young. So I looked it up as we were saying, and he said that he uh, declined because he'd like to use the time to regroup, refresh mentally for the second half of the season. Uh, And probably, you know, there is the sense many guys have said that like the home run derby, they feel like it affects their swing or something like that. So like, I don't know, but it is a little bit like, yeah, LeBron not playing in the (laughs) in the dunk contest. I think, you know, instead of Coors Field being the permanent site, though, I think they should build um, a baseball field adjacent to Mount Everest and then hit home runs there. (laughs) 
Like, why not just go, you know, go all out? Yeah, yeah, and no humidor. Although that would actually be really funny. Like, go to Mount Everest and artificially change the ball to make it harder to hit home runs. Okay, well, let's take a break from the all-star break for a moment. We'll be back in the moment for a get off my turf. In place of our typical rabbit hole of the week, we wanted to do something a little different. The three of us are teaming up in honor of the end of the European Championships, and specifically England losing to Italy on penalty kicks. So I present our newest twist on Get Off My Turf. Why are you like this, English soccer? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, I will I'll lead this off by, look, I'm a Tottenham fan. This last year of Tottenham soccer was brutal. And it went a little something like this. Get a really early goal. Do nothing the rest of the game. Lose at the end. What does that sound like to you? (laughs) Something like England's final against Italy? Like, why did they play like that? They got that early goal and then they just quit. These are really talented soccer players who are capable of doing of really beautiful soccer. And instead they played very boring and kind of scared soccer and then and and it cost them and you could see it coming you could see I mean Italy had most of the possession most of the way they had chances because they were actually taking shots as opposed to England so you could see it coming throughout the match and and just it felt very painful to my Tottenham heart not a fan you could you could argue that Italy was just a better team and they got off to a really bad start giving up that goal, but the rest of the game was what you should have seen, which is a better team exerting dominance over a lesser team, which might have been the case. I think that's true. I mean, uh, the Italy has the higher ELO rating for sure, uh, which, of course, is the most important factor here at 538. <laughs> um, and so maybe that is an argument like I'm with you, Sarah. I, th- I thought that that was sort of a, a disaster playing out in slow motion, literally in slow motion sometimes. <laughs> uh, and it's almost like a curse to score first, especially that early in a game, because there is that temptation. And I think maybe the weight of the expectations and the history and everything Everything was definitely on Gareth Southgate's mind as they were playing because it did seem like this idea of, okay, we got to park the bus now. We got this. Let's like hold on to this. And that's just, I, I think the analytics would back up the idea that that's not really the way to win. Like we've seen time and again that seeding p- huge amounts of possession to your opponent, even if you have a one goal lead, is not the smartest way to play. But in their defense, They'd only given up. There was one a lot of goal. defense, by the way. <laughs> they've only given up one goal in the whole tournament, and that was off a a, a set piece. So it very easily could have won one nothing. I mean, it didn't appear that way. It looked like Italy was going to score. <laughs> Frankly, it looked like they were going to score again, and that it wouldn't even make it to a shootout. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that is kind of the model they've been. This kind of conservative model is kind of how they got there to begin with. Yeah, uh, that 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 playing to a draw mentality. Not so much. Why are you like this, English soccer? <laughs> um, also, choking during penalty kicks. Sort okay. of an English let's soccer thing. Let's talk about thing. penalty kicks. This let's, is my problem. Let's, let's st- do it. All right, go. Let's start on a macro 30,000 feet level. This is dumb. This is a dumb <laughs> way for a world, not world class, Europe class, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, or huge level. I think in soccer, those two things overlap. <laughs> okay, fair enough. 
for a major tournament to be decided. I'm okay doing it actually in the earlier rounds, but I think they should play. They should they should take a page from the NHL playoffs, which I hate to shoot down in, in the NHL also. Um, but they don't do it in the playoffs, and for good reason, because it's a gimmicky game that has nothing to do with the game that they're deciding the outcome of. And even I think that's even more so in soccer. And I don't know. I, I, imagine just a version of that where it just goes on perpetually until the team scores. Kind of great. You'd force I, no, them into playing no them that, more. No one in that stadium is complaining. I mean, they yeah. don't have another game after this, so they can leave it all out there. I mean, you couldn't do that in like, I understand you couldn't do that in the semifinals or quarters, but but why not? Yeah, and The Economist did some research that found that the the reason why they introduced the shootout was because they felt like determining things by a coin flip was not fair, which we could also probably say is true. But at the same time, the whole thing is kind of determined. It's kind of a coin flip anyway, in terms of not just uh, predicting who will win in that, but also just the order in which people kick has such a huge impact on who wins. And that's determined by a coin flip. So there, there's yeah. just uh, there, there's still so much randomness in it. Uh, and I get that that's like kind of the point, And maybe that added to the drama. I mean, it certainly added to the drama. There was uh, so much riding on those particular kicks. Yet at the same time, like there, there's this tension between fairness and drama that I think is maybe more present in soccer penalty kicks than any other place in sport. Okay, now to get to England, I did not agree with this. So, I mean, this is he's getting a lot of heat for this Southgate. And, and overall, I think people, you know, shouldn't be too hard on Southgate because I think being that is the might be the worst job in sports managing that team. <laughs> and the fact that he's gotten to semifinals of World Cup and the finals of the Euro is an incredible achievement, considering the weight of the expectation that goes on that team. Um, that being said, I didn't think the subs to bring on Rashford and Sancho for the penalty kicks was smart. I have two witnesses when they were subbing in Rashford. I looked at Rashford and I said, that guy's missing a penalty. Oh, no. Because you could <laughs> see it in his face. That he wasn't ready. And and frankly, you know, I, I played soccer. I was a defender. And at one time we were actually in a playoff and we lost in the penalties. And being a defender and never getting a chance. And it was because I think four of our guys missed. Um, and frankly, it was nerves. Um, it was really frustrating. But I think there is something about the guys who've been on the field the whole time. I think they're a little more relaxed or a little looser. And like if Jordan Henderson stays out there, he made a penalty in the previous round or whenever the other shootout was like, I think he would have hit it. And frankly, it's interesting that Southgate was a defender who famously missed a penalty that cost them uh, a Euro, I think against Germany. You look at what Harry Maguire did, let the defenders take him. I think there's less pressure on them for some reason. They just get up there, they don't overthink, and they just slam it into the corner. And, and there, there's, you know, the idea was, okay, we're going to uh, bring in guys that are specifically good at this at the, la at the last second so that we can get them in. But I d did a little research on uh, the EPL over the past three seasons and looked at penalty kick success rates for uh, starters versus subs. And starters... 
starters made them at an 81% clip and subs only made them at a 72% clip. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that would happen, but might be because starters are starters for a reason. Right. Uh, But at the same time, it does sort of suggest that, like, if you're bringing in people specifically for this, and again, not all of those were, you know, there's probably many reasons why the subs were made, but uh, it, it just speaks to this idea that you should probably stick with the guys that got you there. Let's put it that way. I mean, and, and England, you know, beyond Harry Kane, were not great penalty takers. So this, it was going to be a problem for them. But maybe that's another reason to not play for the penalties, like to try or a little earlier and right. push forward and attack more. And those substitutions were especially maddening, given that he should have made subs much earlier in, yeah. in the match when things were really stagnant to try to, like... To, to win, especially after Italy scored. I think even before that, there was a case to be made for changing, for committing to a strategy and, and going for that, either committing to attacking at that point or committing to parking the bus. The kind of in-between they were playing was not great. And and they didn't do that. And then they conceded the goal. And then they still didn't change. And it's like, what are you trying to do here? Why are you this way? Why are you this way? Uh, uh, it's too much pressure I mean, it's pressure on every every team, and we always see that. But on England, it, it, it's just unbearable, and it, yeah. it's it's too bad because when um, Pickford did make that save on uh, Jorginho, who, who's considered, <laughs> I think he's considered like the best penalty taker in the world. Um, that was incredible, and yeah. just to have that immediate letdown was was really it was a roller coaster there for sure. We have to talk about the one other, the, the post match business. And this is why, you know, I was I was rooting for England, but boy, they made it hard to to root for them. The moment those three players missed the penalty, I think everyone knew they were going to be there was going to be racist nonsense like hurled at them. And can we just not? What are you doing? Penalties of all people. English people should should be sympathetic to missy penalty kicks. It's like should be part of their culture by now to not take it out on the players. That was just uh it was so brutal. Brutal to see right away, especially like those three guys. You felt I mean they're young and oh the Saka that you just felt so bad for him right away and you knew it was coming and it just I know it, it's not all English fans, obviously, but the, the proportion that does it, this is why players take a knee. This is why players are protesting the way, you know, the, the way they're treated. This is why. And it's like, can't we learn from this at all? Please, guys, can't we? And they were just put in such a position, uh, I think an unfair position. Obviously, what happened to them afterward was unfair, but uh, even just just heaping pressure on players uh, it, to, to put them in the most critical possible situation and knowing that you know, the, the weight of history was on them in that moment, it was, was a really unfair position to put them in. If I was a coach, I would look around at the f- who are the five most exhausted players on the field and make them take the penalties. Because I honestly think there's something to this, Neil. And it's interesting that you your stats uh, bared it out, is that you're not overthinking it if you're if you've been out there all all game and are you know dripping with sweat. You just get up there and you hit it. Where if you just come on and then you like you barely played um, less than a right. minute 
and you have all that running through your head and what is a psychological test. Yeah, let them get into the flow of the game before putting them in the position to have this do or die kick. I don't know. It just seemed such a such a terrible idea. Every English fan knew that they weren't going to win that shootout. <laughs> they should <come> have. <laughs> well, if they didn't, if they if they knew they were going to lose, why did they lash out the way they did? Yeah, I mean, that's the you know you can't have it both ways where you're as pessimistic as possible, which they kind of pretend to be. Uh, the fatalism sort of runs really deep in that fan base, but then also you must have had some kind of expectation. Otherwise, why would you you know react so so negatively and so badly uh, when you do lose? If you don't have any expectations, why did you think you would win? Maybe those people are just racist and just will uh, take any excuse uh, well, to be racist. Maybe. I guess so. I think all. I think well. I think all elite national teams or teams that national teams that deem themselves elite, even if they aren't, um, kind of react this way. I think we would have seen that in a lot of countries. That being said, this is my final note on the Euro. I think England is too emotionally invested in this team. Uh, it's unhealthy for a nation. So I, I kind of wanted them to win just to, you know, maybe get rid of that. But this, eh, that it is unbelievable how much they live and die on that club club team. Seek help England. Seek help. Yeah. yeah. The funny thing is this team is really exciting. I mean, like they there are. are good things in store for this team. They're going to make, they, they should be, make noise at the world cup. They're young. They're fun. They're really talented. If, they can be managed slightly they're better. D- also, they're diverse. They show like yeah. you know a changing demographics in yeah. England, and they're also they're activists. You know, they were out there. You know, Harry came with the rainbow armband and the taking the knee. I mean, this is not the typical traits of a of an England team. And so, credit to Southgate also for you know assembling this team and, and picking the right players. I, I do think he gets a lot of criticism, but he, I think he also made a lot of good decisions a- along the way that maybe are overlooked. Yeah. Well, for the sake of the entire country, I hope that they can like both come to terms, come to grips with their fandom and also that the team can can put to, to I rest. Of, I thought of one more get off the lawn on England. Uh, <laughs> sweet Caroline. Come on, guys. Yeah, nope. that's, that nope. was pretty. I know yeah. you don't aren't familiar with the Red Sox, but uh, Neil, do you remember there was a brief period at Shea where the Mets were trying to play Sweet Caroline uh, in oh, the eighth inning, and I refused to stand for it and sing along, <laughs> and I would often yell at the people who were singing along, saying, "We're not at Fenway. This is not our song. We have Lazy Mary. We have our own songs." Don't participate in this. It's a bad decision. The song is taken. <laughs> I mean, look, I will say even American, different American teams who who sing Sweet Caroline, it's a little weird, but at least it, it generally makes sense. England does not have a shortage of their own songs. Why would you resort to something <laughs> as like basic as Sweet Caroline? Like, guys, come on. <laughs> Don't get me started on Seven Nations Army. It's just so <laughs> overdone. And every team sort of acts like they're the only team that sings this song, even though every college football team and every uh, it's been going on for years. Ever since that song came <laughs> wow, out. Wow, such hatred for a Seven Nation Army. My- no, I love the Seven Nation Army. It works great. It's just, you know, there's a lot of songs out there, guys. <laughs> Try something else. It's not Maybe all it's- the White Stripes and Neil Diamond. The White Stripes and Neil Diamond. That's 
that's our universe of sports songs. I love it. That feels like a perfect place to end <laughs> this get off my turf Euros edition. Um, and that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.